I had this belief, strong belief, that you cannot grow up in this country without racism influencing you. But you have a responsibility to do something about it. The, and it's because of this narrative that we've experienced from the, from the beginning. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the Courageous Conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Well, here we are again. Yeah. Here we are again. Yeah. I'm Kiva White. I'm the black guy, okay. as you can see. Uh, and I'm John Kepner. I'm the white guy. <laughs> and uh, welcome to our Courageous Conversation podcast. Kiva and I have a lot in common, That's right. uh, not the least of which is... K is for Kiva, and K is for Kepner, and K is for what you call the knowledge factor. That's right. The K factor. The K factor, that's because right. Because this is all about uh, imparting knowledge on a subject that we both share a strong interest in, racial justice. Absolutely. And I mean, this is a platform, John, as you know, that we have created to allow leaders uh, and, and, and from any organization, and, and you don't even have to be a leader, you just have to have a compassion for social justice to be able to have a platform to share their perspective, to share their knowledge, to share resources that can help other groups and individuals grow in this capacity so that we all can live in a society where uh, uh, people are respected regardless of their various uh, social identities that we all come with. So uh, I'm excited about uh, being able to have the opportunity to speak with you today and um, engage in a conversation about your experience with this whole topic on racial justice and and how it has impacted your life. Um, and I know we had talked um, uh, when I had my, you know, <clears throat> when you when you interviewed me uh, about this, the, the thing called the talk, right? And um, tell me about, uh, you have three sons, you have three boys, and um, so I wanted to ask you, have you ever had to have the talk with them and not the one about the birds and the bees, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, the answer is no. Yeah. Because there wasn't any need to have the talk. Hmm. Uh, they, um, they were told that if they were ever at a party at, and think bad things were happening and they weren't doing the bad things, yeah. that the first thing they should do is go up to the police and say very um, calmly, uh, I, I didn't drink or I didn't do it, and you can call my mom. Wow. You know, and that my wife was really good about you know drilling that into them, and that did happen once. Right. But we didn't have uh, to worry about the police pulling them over or anything like that. Um, but I will say that that we 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 talked a lot. Uh, the way the way race would come up with our sons mm-hmm. was, um, I think, one way was through role models in sports. Ah, okay. Because we were all very interested in sports, and um, my youngest son loved Daryl Strawberry. Oh, okay. But Daryl Strawberry had some real Seriously. problems, yeah. drug yeah. problems, and things like that. And we would talk about that, and in relation to role models. And I think uh, you know they grew to have a lot of respect for a lot of, uh, of black athletes because of that. Yeah. I talked about one of my heroes growing up was Muhammad Ali. Nice. Uh, not because he was a great fighter, but because of what he did as an individual. Yeah. And we talk about that. And, and um, you know, I would 
it's still my nickname in the family, is the greatest. Mm. Because I wanted to reinforce that point, because every time I said the greatest, they think of Muhammad Ali, at least I would think of Muhammad Ali. Great. So we, did, we, we, we got into those kinds of discussions, um, but we never had to have that talk yeah. that you're referring to. Yeah. So, so you just described how you as a parent kind of raised your boy, you kind of guided your boys to kind of some of the, you know, the racial quote-unquote landmines or minefield and allowed to get, mm. have them um, be respectful and, and uh, when it comes to engaging with law, law enforcement, right? What was it like for you growing up and, as a child um, and how were you taught um, to, you know, to respect authority um, what were some of the things that you were taught as a child around um, people of color that were different than you? I don't remember seeing a black person face to face mm. until I was 10 years old. Wow. I loved baseball as a kid and I loved the black players and the white players. Right. My all-time favorites, Willie Mays. You know, right. so, so that was that was where I would see black people, people of color. Um, when uh, at, I grew up in, here in um, Pennsylvania, but uh, when I was 10, we moved to North Jersey yeah. to a uh, town called Glen Ridge, which is about three miles long and about a half a mile wide. Mm. And um, there wasn't a black family in our town. But we lived on the, uh, the last one of the long streets at the edge of the town, and Montclair was right next to our street, and yeah. and right next to our street, it was an all-black street. Okay. So literally, it was black and white. Mm. And the family behind my house had a, a young guy my age, and we st started playing with each other. Yeah. Um, I can't say I. I knew he was a different color. It wasn't like I was colorblind, but it didn't matter to me to play. I didn't. Right. I didn't know uh, anything about it. The story goes that my uh, uh, one of our neighbors called my dad and said, um, "That doesn't happen here. Your son shouldn't be playing with that wow. little black boy." Mm. And uh, my the, the family story passed down to me is my dad t told that neighbor to go pound sand. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first, you know, real awareness. But uh, even, um, you know, all through high school, um, uh, the only black kid I knew was Donnie Peterson, who was on the football team mm -hmm. with me. And uh, yeah. and uh, I didn't, I wasn't particularly close to Donnie. So it really wasn't until uh, much later, when I went to college, and that I had much exposure to, yeah. to yeah. black people. So I mean, we grew up in this white privileged environment. And how did that, how would you say that has um, informed your current lens on social injustice and racism? Yeah, well, a couple of things happened, uh, though, that my, my dad, uh, who was around until I was 11 and he died suddenly, uh, in addition to that story, um, I do remember this is an issue that mattered to him, and the way I remember it is that... Uh, we, the reason I know that's the case is that um, when I was about 10 or 11, uh, he wanted, we decided to have a debate mm. on who was the greater president, Washington or Lincoln. Mm. 
Mm. And I made a strategic debate decision to pick Lincoln because I knew my father really liked Abraham Lincoln right. because he quotes freed the slaves. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just know from that that there must have been something imparted to me from him and maybe my mother, I don't know, that made me make that decision, right. that debate decision. And I, I, I can't explain that anymore. It wasn't until later when I went to college that I really started becoming more aware of this. Although I, I, I did, uh, I did uh, listen to a um, graduation speech that I, I gave recently, and I did, I did reference racial justice in it mm -hmm, and discrimination. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it must have been on my mind during, mm -hmm. during my, my high school years. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't because of personal experiences. Right. It was all because of what was in the news, I guess. The civil rights right. era was, you know, starting to really, really crank yeah. up, and I was, I was aware of what was going on in the world, very much aware. Of right. I recall a conversation we had a while, a while back, where you were sharing with you discovered uh, the great activist Angela Davis. That you had, you had some, you had some. Some high school roots. Some, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's right. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, the at, at graduation, I was one of the graduation speakers, and the other one was uh, Fania Davis, mm. uh, Angela Davis's younger sister, mm. who who is now a uh, has had a prominent career as a civil rights lawyer. She's yeah. in San Francisco, and um, I would love to reconnect with her now. Wow. Yeah. But I I didn't know Fania very well, and she was the only black person in our class. Yeah. Um, and I guess it was a statement in this really conservative, this, this, mm -hmm. this community voted 85% for Goldwater mm. in 64. It was a very conservative, but it was some statement that she was asked, like probably I think she was the faculty choice to speak yeah. at graduation, said something yeah. to the community. So, you know, I've been reading the book, uh, White Fragility by D'Angelo, right? I read it, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and in that book, she 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 referenced um, a piece about how Toni Morrison talks about this concept called race talk. Mm -hmm. You know that in the presence of so you have you have covert racism and then you have overt racism. You know, so systemic racism. You know, where a white person will hire all their friends. That's 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 like in your face. And what she's talking about is this concept called race talk, where when you're not in the presence of black people, but you're in your own inner circle, that that type of conversation can surface. So, the question for you is, if you was to ever stumble upon, uh, quote unquote, race talk, how would you respond to that? Or have you ever? I have. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I have. Yeah. I have. What did? What, uh, what, what was your and, approach? And uh, I think uh, there was a time when uh, I would not. Um, well, one of the problems is, if you want to, you, I would often feel the urge to respond, mm. but not know how to do it. Right. Um, but part of it was, you know, I I wouldn't want. It might have been a situation where it was a business situation where it wasn't appropriate. I didn't think it was appropriate to do, or or I might feel that people. Well, why are you raising that issue? You know, um, 
And so, and so, uh, but I think as time went on, I, I hope I've developed more uh, techniques and more courage to talk, mm -hmm. to, 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 you know, to confront people with it. But um, I, I, you know, I still have more work to do on that. I think yeah. all white people have more work to do on that. Um, uh, I, I had one situation where, I'm trying to remember the exact details, um, but it was it was a COVID-related thing, so it wasn't a personal thing. It was something on an email, and I had an opportunity, and I didn't I didn't follow up on it, mm. and and it, it still bothers me right. that I didn't. Um, a and and even in discussions since uh, you know the great awakening of last summer yeah. among white people, even in discussions, large discussions on Zoom. I remember one in particular where people will say things, and I sometimes I will challenge more more often than not I will challenge. But there's one situation where I just I just bit my tongue. Mm. It was a it was an older woman who told a story that um, I thought just wasn't appropriate, and I mm. should have I should have I should have said something. Yeah, yeah. So. Wow. I I still think about that. It was a situation where. Uh, people were kind of, it was an all-white discussion. Okay. There might have been one one or two black people on it. It was a church-related thing. Right. And um, and it was, a, uh, it was a group of people, a lot of people on the, that I didn't know. But this one woman who I did know, was a little older woman, was talking about how she was a little scared of black people because when she was younger, she was walking home and a black person was, she thought, following her. Mm. And she had to go into, she decided to go into a store so that she would be in a safe environment. Right. And I thought, I thought to myself, I should be talking to her, mm. not about why she was afraid, but why, why she was talking about that now. What was behind that? What was mm. bothering her that caused her to and just start a conversation with her about that. Now, if I'd been with her one-on-one, -on -one, I probably would have done that, but in a setting on Zoom in whatever, June, whatever it was, July, it was a difficult, I'd elected not to yeah. think about it. But then, but then I thought about uh, when I was um, in the Army Reserves, in law school, um, I uh, went from a reserve meeting a Sunday night. I went to reserve meeting to a law school and studied, waiting for my wife Mimi to come down on the train. Mm. And I was going to meet her at 30th Street Station. I was at Penn Law School, and I got I got on the um, I got on the subway, and uh, it was just me on the platform. Mm. And these two uh, young black guys came down, and uh, the classic situation. Um, the guy had a trench coat on. One guy, I think, was really bad off. I think he, mm -hmm. he needed a fix or something like that. And, but the other guy was clear-headed and he had, a, you know, uh, like it was a gun in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he wanted to shake me down for some money. Mm. And um, I said, now don't get me wrong, don't get the wrong impression because I'm dressed up in my military 
<laughs> I would. I said things I couldn't yeah. believe it. Yeah. yeah. And 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 finally, I tried to just talk him, waiting for the train to come. And finally, he said, he pulls out a knife, and rubs it up against his cheek, and he said, "This is a classic line. Let me put it this way: Which do you value more, your money or your life? Mm. You know, it was a it was a really tough encounter. Mm -hmm. And um, and I said, well, I all I have is fifteen. He said, do you have change for twenty? Mm. That was his opening line. I said, I looked at my all I had. I said, no, all I have is a ten and a five. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, oh my God, he might have thought of being a wise guy doing all this talking with him. Mm -hmm. But I gave him the fifteen dollars, and he said, do you want five back? Do you have enough money to get to where you're going? Mm. And I would tell that story to that person because there was something, there was some humanity about him. Mm. And, and then I thought, well, his friend, this guy may be a bad dude, I don't know, but he was not asking for this money for himself, he was asking for his friend. So mm -hmm. I tried to see a different side of the story and I would have told that story to her that maybe mm -hmm. there was a different story. Do you know that he was following you? Why did you feel unsafe? Mm -hmm. Was it just because he was black? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't do anything to threaten you. Right. Like this person threatened me, but there's another way to look at what this person did. Yeah. Now, some of my white friends, if I tell that story, they probably think I'm nuts. Yeah. You know? But yeah. that's the way I felt. So by that time, I was thinking that way, even in a situation where I felt pretty, you know, physically threatened. Right. Yeah. yeah. So even back then, you saw the humanitarian yeah. act. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure why. I mean, I'm not sure what it was. I don't mean to say I'm a wonderful person, but there was right. something that got me thinking that way. Right. Back. Maybe maybe being a, you know, trained as a lawyer, you're you know you're trained to look at two sides of an issue. But I know some lawyers that don't. Right. That would have responded differently. Yeah. 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 So. so I was gonna I was gonna ask you to describe um, what you just did just now a negative uh, or a not so positive encounter with a person of color and how that influenced you, and then on the flip side of that, share a, share a, a, a positive encounter. With someone. Yeah, you... well, I, I have a lot of them. Yeah. Not the least of which is our relationship. Yeah. Right. But um, I, and, and um, oh, gee, there's, a, I, I could sh should categorize them rather than individualize them. Sure. So um, I went to a, a school, Wesleyan, when I was, uh, you know, in 19, you know, fall 1964. And there were two, I think we had two African-Americans in our class. Uh, and very few across the university. By the time I graduated, 10% of our student body uh, was African-American. Mm. So I went to a, for four years in an organization that made a major decision to um, promote bringing, you know, uh, black people into the education process. Mm -hmm. So that was a major statement. Now that now, so how's it? So Martin Luther King came during that period and talked to us. Mm -hmm. um, I'll never forget it. Wow! The whole cafeteria was filled. I was up in the upper level looking down. Uh, we had a we had a professor, a religion professor, who mm. who knew him and invited him. 
And um, you know, this is right, you know, it was way before you were born. Well, well you know, yeah. not too far over. But but it was uh, it was a powerful, you know, he's a powerful man, powerful message. And um, you know, I think that that influenced me. That whole milieu and that person at that time. I didn't yeah. meet him personally, but that that was a, a, a significant one. I um, uh, and in my senior senior year, mm -hmm. with all these new black students coming in, a largely fraternity-driven environment, uh, my fraternity, all-white fraternity, um, we, we brought in the first black pledge and brother, and he was my mentor. I was his mentor, his mm -hmm. big brother, mm -hmm. whatever they called it at the time. And um, got to know him, and, and uh, that experience uh, was a, a important experience for me because I'll never forget the conversation in the in the room, you know, down below where you decide who's going to be Make in the fraternity, it, who isn't going to be in the fraternity. Yeah, that um, the Brotherhood from Boston said things that were outright racist. No good. Outright racist. Mm -hmm. Using all the wrong words too. And um, and I thought I really have to pay special attention to get to know this young man. And by the time the year went by, um, it, he realized right away. I think we didn't have the discussion that said he said to me, you know, some of you, these brothers are racist. Mm -hmm. But he did he did tell me that he just wasn't this wasn't going to work for him, and he debrotherized. Mm. And and knowing what I knew and the attitude, I didn't try to dissuade him. Yeah, you know, and so so that was an important positive, negative, back up, but positive as far as as my development of you know understanding and and in terms of him. And then you know, um, I learned to meet a, a fellow by the name of Clay Armbrister, who was our first black in our firm, and I was his big brother. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, wonderful man who's had just a tremendous professional experience. He's, he's the president of a, um, of a university down in, in North Carolina now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've had, I've had um, a lot, just starting with those, I can name a lot more, but there are different categories of my life. Uh, yeah. So. So it sounds like, so you know you hear in, um, in, in black communities, I, I was the first, you know, I'm the first generation college graduate, first homeowner. Um, have you have you ever experienced that? Have you ever, um, outside of just meeting uh, people of color for the quote unquote first time, have you ever experienced having to say that you was the first, for example, of in, in your family history becoming an attorney? Like how? Has that has that been something that you had to contend with? You can tell I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like yeah. nothing's coming. Yeah. Nothing's coming uh, yeah. right away. Um, ah, I was the first person in my family to marry a Catholic who didn't convert to become a Protestant. Ah, uh -huh, okay. So from in the, in the broad family too, I think. Right. Uh, okay. Just the immediate, my immediate family. Right. Okay. And uh, you know there was a lot of uh, anti-Catholic, you yeah. know, sentiment. Right. Okay. Uh, 
but mostly the answer is no. I guess. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I can't um, relate. You. I can't relate. Yeah, yeah, to so, being the first. Yeah. So many times um, you hear, you may hear a person of color saying, "I'm the first this, I'm the first," mm -hmm. and what that, how that, what that really means, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and is that viewed with respect by other people when the person is the first? It can be. And then it can, it, it depends on, if it's in the family, the family's definitely proud yeah, of that, yeah. right? Um, and then it, de it, de it depends. It depends on what arena, you know, first time home ownership is a big, you know, it's a big, mm -hmm. huge accomplishment. Because yeah, yeah. now you're breaking down, you're, you're, you're adding uh, wealth and asset, you're teaching wealth and asset building, um, which um, some people don't get that until you know, late, late, late in life and in communities of color, if you're not taught about wealth building mechanism. Mm -hmm. I always talk about the book uh, by John Hughes called Family Wealth. And he talks about how um, there's an advantage point because he te that's his job is to teach wealthy families how to build wealth generations deep, right? And most African-American families don't get don't get that type of education or get that, get access to that type of information. And so thinking about how you were, how you were raised and when, you know, you hear the word privilege, right? And most people talk about privilege and this concept of white privilege. What are your thoughts about that? Do you, do you feel that that's a, that's a, that's a valid, that's a valid term because it's used a lot. Yeah. And, and yeah, well, I, I, I do. And my own personal experience is that, so I, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, college and then uh, that era of my life. But during that time, I was acutely aware of what was going on with the civil rights movement and very positive about it. Um, but in my mind, it was until those guys from Boston talked, it was all in the South. Yeah. Then that was revealing because, oh, it's not just in the South, it's all over the place. Yeah. But it was, it was more a theoretical uh, affinity or understanding. And, and then what bothered me, I had some more experience. I, mean, I worked you know, in Newark um, in the legal um, services when mm -hmm. I was in law school and mm -hmm. you know, worked in the city. And I, so I got more in touch with what was actually happening in the city and right. black people and so forth and the Newark riots, you know, yeah. I experienced that. It was just, a, you know, two towns away and mm -hmm. I worked in Newark yeah. um, that summer. And so, so it became more closer to home and more with real people, not just that little black kid that I played with, a, you know, that's right, the other yeah. street. But then it was like this period of my life when I just got into my job and and it that coincided with like the end of the civil rights movement or the dissipation of the civil rights movement and all of Johnson's programs and and then the nation just stopped paying attention. Mm -hmm. And it coincided with my building my professional practice and starting a family and it always bothered. It was always kind of a latent thing to me. It bothered me that it was all about the middle class and yeah. everybody forgot about about you know, racism and and things like that, or it became nationally 
you know, it's all about crime and then yeah. attacking crime and stuff like that. So, so to get back to your question, um, white privilege never dawned on me. I never thought about being privileged. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I got scholarships to go to college. I couldn't go into college for the scholarships and I made, you know, the American dream and I worked hard yeah. like you did and I yeah. got into a great college, got into a great law school and, you know, got a job and and that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, some of my decisions, like which law firm to work with, were influenced by their, you know, their attitudes and things like this. Yeah. So it wasn't totally gone for me. But white privilege? And I, how I benefited from white privilege, never thought about it at all until about um, a colleague of ours, Marion Biglin, uh, was instrumental in, in uh, an education program on this subject at our church. Wow. And um, it was the first time I ever thought about white privilege. And, you know, we were asked, we were all asked the question, what 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 have you experienced as white privilege? And I'll tell you the story that that this mm. is this is a major thing for me that my white privilege really helped out. Uh, this is Vietnam, and I'm in the middle of law school, and I, uh, you know, no longer have a deferment, and I'm subject to the draft, and my draft mm. number is pretty low. Mm. I had a uh, uh, an aunt. I'm here in Philadelphia. I had an aunt in Norristown, not far, uh, mm -hmm. who worked at the draft board. Hmm. And she said, Johnny, you should get apply to get into the 416th Civil Affairs Unit. Um, and so I put in the waiting list was, you know, eight or nine months. Meanwhile, I get drafted by my draft board back up in, in North Jersey. And um, I was able, because I was in law school and thinking a little bit like a lawyer, mm -hmm to argue successfully to the draft board that I should get a six-month occupational deferment to continue in Camden the work I was doing in legal services mm. in, in, um, in Newark um, so that I could get, have, get into the Army Reserves and not go, have to go to Vietnam. Wow. Now, I also made an argument that I was a sole surviving son and I wouldn't be going to Vietnam anyway and under the army regulations. Mm -hmm. um, and I played on the fact that I was patriotic. I wasn't trying to shirk my duty. I was going into the military and do my part. Right. But white privilege got me all of those things. And the reason I'm mentioning in the context of white privilege is because some kid who was 18 years old in Newark that draft board knew that they had a big pool of 18-year-olds mm. that didn't have these privileges, that wasn't mm -hmm. in law school, mm -hmm. that was they could draft. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I have some guilt about that, frankly, mm. that, that mm. some black kid got drafted and went to Vietnam and lost his life. Mm. Right? Now, it isn't directly, I don't know that that actually happened, but that, right. that's the way I think about it when I think about white privilege. And then I started thinking about all the other, you know, yeah. all the other things I, I had. That right. when I see and hear stories about my black friends and so forth and what they had to overcome, you know, your story when I interviewed you, I mean, I kept thinking about, that wasn't my world. Right. I didn't have to worry about that. Yeah. You know, I really didn't have to do that. You know, you know, you didn't have a father in your house. I didn't after I was 11, but my father influenced 
me a lot. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we, you know, all these things to contrast. And, and so it, was, it took all those years for me to really, really start thinking even about that question. Sorry, wow. that was a long-winded answer. No, that's good. That's I, a, I really appreciate yeah. your, 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 your honesty and, and transparency around that. Because most, most people, I mean, we teach, I teach it in, 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 at Rutgers, and it's a very hard concept for, for folks to recognize it. So when we talk about white privilege, we're really not talking about position in society. We're really just talking about skin tone in general. Just, just the, the skin tone alone yeah. Yeah. affords people yeah. different privilege. And just how yeah. do we get... How do we accept that and acknowledge that? Sometimes it can be challenging. And you, you mentioned the word guilt. I can remember coming, uh, f finishing up a training session one time and a, a white gentleman came and really uh, was opened up his heart and explained to me how uh, eye-opening the session was for him and that he was struggling with post-colonial guilt. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's uh, one of the biggest barriers to engaging in these conversations how to because it, it, it reach it re you relive some of some of these some of these instances in your life and some of these pivotal points in your life and I think that's the that can be the, the barrier to having these type of conversations but they're necessary because on if you think about the spectrum we've all I mentioned trauma in, in, in my interview, and for you, it's guilt. It's some kind of emotion that we, it, that's, that's the impact. Yeah, that's, that's the impact, that's regardless. Good, yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, that's the impact that, yeah. that it, it, it can have on, on, on us in, in many ways. From, and, and it's different on different um, perspectives or opposite planes, right? So with that, I wanted to ask the question, do you think people should be responsible for the actions of their ancestors. Um, do you think that? Do you think that's fair? Well, one response I have is that it's easy to say no, yeah. I don't, mm -hmm. and and a lot of people cop out on that. I guess it's another way of saying it is, yeah, I, I do. I think that we have a responsibility. How can you say that we have a responsibility to the next generation? And not say that we have a responsibility for what prior generations did. You know, I asked you about reparations. Um, I never really thought about reparations until recently. Um, and I, I would dismiss it pretty quickly initially by saying, yeah, I theoretically get it, but practically I don't see how you could do it. And I think you sort of reflected that in your answer yeah. too. But I think there's something to it also. I think you couldn't possibly, if you took, um, you know, 40 acres and a mule and you, and you multiplied it times the number of people that were supposed to get that. Times and, the number of years. And add inflation in years, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a number that we, we yeah. just couldn't do. Correct. But there are things that can be done that are more than symbolic. Mm. Um, the, uh, you know, Congress just passed the... Uh, um, 19th of yeah, June, June thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. June I mean, that's symbolic. Yeah, symbolic. That's symbolic. Yeah. Well, there's, there's some economic consequence, but it isn't going to flow to reparations. Is if it's a day off, people aren't going to work and get back. Anyway, but but um, I think there, when we talk about, um, you know, the infrastructure proposal that Biden has that's going to um, take some areas that were totally eliminated because of you know interstates going through them and doing something about it mm -hmm. where you're actually spending money and it's going to 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 you know rejuvenate a community or a business 
or you do that kind of thing with respect to uh, um, the, the uh, Tulsa. Was it Tulsa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that again. That's another example of education. You know, not even on the radar screen. Yeah. Not even on the radar screen until, yeah. you know, this new awakening. A hundred years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's um, something that's. Uh, yeah. So so yeah. I think there's some things you can do, to um, uh, to uh, because you are responsible, or we collectively could do because we 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 have some responsibility for the past sins of earlier generations. Yeah. But you can't you you. But it also has to be. We also have to focus on. The forward-looking thing. That's right. And if there's some way to do it, to recognize the past, but also create value for the future, I think that would be an interesting yeah. way of looking at it. I'm glad you mentioned the Oklahoma because I was going to yeah. I was going to jump to that next. Yeah. So a hundred years later, it's this recognition of this this atrocity that occurred, hence with the black Black Wall Street. And I always think about how we talk about the fear, right? The fear that sometimes, the fear of conversation, to engage in this type of conversation. I also think that at times there could be a fear of surpassing in the area of success, right? Because most people, most, most people of color, it's not that we want to surpass anybody. We just want to be successful just like everybody else in society. Do you think that there, there, there's, there's sometimes there could be a tendency of white America to have a fear of black African-Americans becoming more progressive and more successful in life? Because hence the Black Wall Street, I mean, it was very successful. There was no crime. It was a, a businesses. And then we have this, this happen. Um, we see uh, some of that can happen um, in the workplace as well, when a person of color is denied, is denied a promotion and someone with less skills, but because they're white, gets that promotion. How, what's, your, what's, your, what's your perspective on that in terms of this, this whole thing about success yeah. versus surpassing? Because yeah. as, as an African-American, all I want to do is take my family to Disneyland too. I don't. I don't need to. I don't yeah. need to get the, the, the you know the the, uh, the you know the, the yeah. suite on the on the top floor. I just want to go on vacation great, as well. It's a great question, and a lot of things went through my mind as you were asking it. Yeah, I've always felt that diversity is a way to promote um, business. If you discriminate against a class of people. They won't buy your product. Well, no, that 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 that's that, that's an implication. Yeah, mm -hmm. but that's not where I'm going. You're you're uh, competitively going to hurt yourself as a business mm. because other businesses are going to want talent, and by discriminating against a class of business, you're discriminating against talent. Mm. Now that talent pool may be suppressed of that class may be suppressed because of systematic mm -hmm. suppression. But there are going to be talented people. So I have a story about a, um, in my law firm, I've probably told you this story, but uh, when we had our first class of women, ah. 
the summer program. And we had, firms were smaller at the time, we had four summer associates and it was pretty well known even among the associate levels, this was a second year associate or something, that, that we're only gonna hire two. Mm. And it was also pretty clear by the end of the summer that the two women were the best ones. Right. And I went to the, uh, one of the older, one of the partners that I was doing a lot of work with and I said, isn't this great? We're gonna have our first two women. And he said, oh no, we'll only have one. Mm. We can't hire two women. Mm. And I said to him, I knew he had daughters so my first argument was, so, so you're telling me that when your daughters go to law school, one of them won't get a job somewhere because of this? Mm. But then I said, but then I went to his business side and I said, look, you know, the other, I'm not too far out of law school. The law schools are really aggressively hiring women. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost 50% now. So the talent pool, you're not going to hire the best people and your, our competitors are going to go hire the best people. Mm-hmm. So, so apply that to any class, whether it's blacks or women or whatever, and there's an economic argument. Yeah. I guess. So that's, that's, that's one uh, reaction I had. Um, are, they, are, are, we, are, are white people afraid of that, was your question, that this mm -hmm. could happen? Um, I think um, we've had discussions in my own family mm. about whether our grandchildren will have less of an opportunity mm. because uh, of affirmative action and, and paying more attention to fair hiring practices and equal pay and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, uh, that's a tough issue for white people. Yeah. It's a tough issue for white people when it gets to your own personal family and is somebody gonna be. Now, I have, I argue this point because I don't think so. I think I'd love a situation where everybody has the right resources available to get the right education and the right opportunities and then you just have regular old competition. Yeah. That's yeah. the way it should be and I don't see us getting there unless we, unless we uh, really uh, eliminate all the, you know, the yeah. disparities. So, so yeah, to some, yes, I think some people are, and, um, and uh, it's, we gotta get over that. Yeah. So the parable of the, yeah, the parable of the 10 talents, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm just articulating what you just mm -hmm. said, mm -hmm. that everybody, I agree with that, I think everybody should have equal, they should, they should start out equally, and then what you do, what you do with that opportunity it's, it's pretty much... But starting out equally means being equally resourced. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it's That's not just, depend. oh, everybody, we don't discriminate. Everybody has an opportunity to no, apply no, and get a job. No, no, no. Yeah, so that's why, that's why I'm using the 10 talents, because yeah. in that parable, everybody was given 10 talents. Right? And it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't talk about, yep. it doesn't talk about right. race. Gen. Exactly. And some people squander them and others didn't. Yeah. Right. So, however, in American society, that doesn't happen. Everybody's not given... They're given opportunity, but they're not, not given the access to yeah. the, the resources. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a, a very important piece um, to take a look at. Um, so if you think about, you know, police brutality and all of these things that's been happening lately in the media, um, has there ever been a time that you experienced um, any discrimination or any uh, quote-unquote run-ins with you know, the law. 
And what was that like? Other you? than on Mischief Night, <laughs> 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 yeah, which, uh, uh, oh, but, uh, no, 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 I, 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 uh, I'll tell you one thing that bothers me though, it, it, you can walk through a neighborhood and see um, Black Lives Matter signs, and then you can walk through another neighborhood and see Blue Lives Matter. Yeah. And the Blue Lives Matter signs bother me because I really do respect the police. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't want to put my life on the line. You know, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't have the courage to do that. To be a police officer. Yeah, yeah. Um, or a fireman. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and and I believe that um, it's it's dangerous to typecast everybody. And and so I think people that have those signs that Blue Lives Matter, are, are, making a statement that they matter more than black lives. Mm. And that's not the message. The message should be all of our lives matter and we have to respect all our lives and respect everything that everybody does that's constructive. Mm. And the police really are important to our collective safety. Yeah. Right. yeah. Now, there needs to be reform and, and we need to put, it, it's not defunding the police, it's putting the right resources to do the right thing. You mentioned your neighborhood and how uh, you had a good relationship in your neighborhood because of the police athletically, the police, police engaged, you know. Mm -hmm. There are ways to, uh, Camden, Camden is a good example. Camden has a whole, had a whole new approach to policing that, um, you know, went under the radar screen and they had no discontent. There were no riots, no businesses destroyed because the police were engaged with the community the way. Yeah. So I think I think we we need to um, think along those lines. But we get into these set ways yeah. of looking at thing, and and people don't go deeper and figure these things out. Yeah, that bothers me a lot. Yeah. Does it did I answer your question? Yeah. Or did I go off on a tangent? No, no. What you the question was? Have you ever had any had had oh, any yeah, no, conflict I, with yeah. police? And you said yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I said no. Um, and uh, I think it's I think it's important. That's a good point that you make. You know, just looking at how you know the whole Black Lives Matters movement. It's, it is what that is. It's a protest against police brutality. And so I get it. You know, and I have I have family members that are in law enforcement, and and I never want to see anything happen to my brother-in-law. Um, he's uh, he actually is in Camden. Um, that's where he uh, does his work. Oh um, really? Oh cool. yeah, he's Camden. Yep, Camden County police officer, and at the same time, black on on our men are still getting shot and tased. I just saw a, a oh. an incident on a college student had his hands up, and the guy gets tased. So we have to. I I agree that has oh, to be Oh, there's better. a tremendous reform. Yeah, needed. Yeah, no question. About yeah, that. you know one thing I I've been thinking about it goes back to one of your other questions. One thing is happening, and um, is that people are now seeing yeah. white people are now seeing and hearing stories mm -hmm. that they can emotionally relate to. Mm -hmm. When I was talking about you know all those years when it was theoretical, my views yeah you know, yeah um, 
it's and it's not. I'm not just talking about having conversations or having more encounters with. Uh, we've been, Mimi and I have been lucky to to have through our church to have lots of opportunities to be with black folks uh, in the city and and you know understand that black folks love their kids just like we love our kids. Yeah, you know, we have all these common human things that we do together. That's and right. Just familiarity helps. But hearing stories, good stories and bad stories, we're hearing more of them now in the public domain mm -hmm. in ways that white people can relate to and, per, and, and empathize with because if that, if, that was me, if that was me or my son that that officer has his knee on his neck and is killing him in front of my eye, you know, that, I can relate to that. Yeah. I can't relate to it like you can relate to it, yeah. but I can still relate to it. My emotional reaction, I really wanted to see that verdict too. Yeah. You know, like you were talking about yeah. the Chauvin verdict. Um, and it was emotional. It wasn't to the degree, but my point is that with these stories, you know, stories uh, that hit you emotionally mm -hmm. can make a difference. Yeah. So here's the, I want to, this is, a, this is a, some, a conversation that me and my inner circle we often have um, when we're talking about these type of issues and talking about the black experience, right? And so you kind of just described some of that when you said it may not be what I may feel, right? So as a parent, any parent to see that and have a son. Right. So as parents, that's where That's we why I at. said my son. Yeah. That's exactly that, that. Yeah, and, and, and I, I can recall yeah. at a time when President Obama was criticized by by saying um, um, the young man with the hoodie could have been his son. Yeah. Right? And it's like... I so, thought that was one of the most powerful things he ever said. Yeah. I really did, but... But I, he got but a lot of criticism. Yeah. yeah, right? So... Um, so when you think about the black experience, right, and what that's and what that means to uh, black Af American and African Americans, what are your thoughts about white families who adopt a black kid? Hmm. Do you think that hmm. when that happens, that they have now they have a sense of what the black experience is like? Cause I, and then let me share, let me share with you why. Cause I'm in a meeting several years back, and unbeknownst to me, this this white lady she adopted a black kid, and something took something was you know the the conversation got heated about um, how black kids are treated and how white people don't re, you know don't value life, and she stood up and made a proclamation. Well, I have an adopted black kid, and you can't tell me that. Da, da, da. And she just really really was adamant about understanding what it's like um, for, it's synonymous to a, 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 a mom, a, a, a black mom who loses her black kid is kind of, she's saying that I, I would have that same, I would have that same experience. So do you think that, what are your thoughts on that? About the black experience in, in, yeah, in I, adoption? I, in yeah, I think that, um, White parents who have a black, and I have no experience with this, so I'm just yeah, yeah, theorizing, just, yeah, but sure. a black parents, a white parents with a black kid who's adopted, if they, if they love the child, and I believe you can love an adopted child as much as you can love your natural child. Yeah. I, I, and we have, we, I know that from and experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, will, if they love their child, they will, do everything they can to um, 
help that child um, understand the importance of black culture, um, the things that uh, are important uh, about racism, you know, yeah. they'll, they'll do a great job in that regard. But they will never be able to understand what it's like to be a black person in this country. That's right. I think there's another thing that, that they have to overcome. And I, I have this belief, strong belief, that you cannot grow up in this country mm -hmm. without having, without racism influencing you. Good, right. bad, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. So they, they, yeah. I, I usually say it: you can't grow up in this country without being racist. Mm. And then you you have to under you have to understand that, appreciate it, accept it. It's not your fault. Yeah. Yeah, but you have a responsibility to do something about it. The and it's because of this narrative that we've experienced mm. from the from the beginning. Uh, you know, I remember saying "eeny, meeny, miny, mo." Mm. And I catch a tiger by the toe, and tiger sounds a lot like, you know. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I remember saying that, mm -hmm. or hearing it, and must mm -hmm. have said it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so when I didn't even know any better, I was a little boy. That's right. Yeah. You know? And so, so those things, and you just see it all the time. So, so if you're a white parent of a black kid, you have to overcome all that just like everybody else does. Yeah. So I don't, I, I, I don't know, I, I think if I had that situation, I don't think I could speak from the standpoint yeah. of, of, yeah. of what the kid will have to experience. Yeah. I would try, I would be, try to be sensitive to it, I'd try to hard to, to, to help the child know what to expect. Mm -hmm. um, I would talk to folks like you about how you have the talk. Yeah. You know, I would feel responsibility to do that. But. Is that answer? I mean, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. It, does. it, does. it all stems with whether you love your child. If you love yeah. your child, you'll do whatever is the, what yeah. you can to help your child. Yeah, the black experience is very unique. And I think, um, like I said, it's, you know, I'm 56 and I still, from all the years of, of certain encounters, it, it, it takes, a, it takes, a, it takes, it's going to take time to detox from a lot of yeah. stuff. And you mentioned it's the narrative. The but you know, there's a, there's a positive side to the black experience that yeah. white people don't appreciate. I mean, there's, there's some cultural things. Yeah. And I'm just beginning to learn. But there's some cultural things that I think are really, really interesting. Yeah. And I'm, 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 sometimes I'm envious. I mean, mm. the whole, when you talk about, you know, the, uh, the, the black churches, Mm -hmm. And and the um, the music that comes out of the black churches and uh, and mm -hmm. the the beliefs that come out of the black churches that and and the, how they're carried on from generation to generation and um, you know it's like if you're if you grew I've seen this uh, if you grew up in Philadelphia and went to Catholic school and you meet somebody else from Philadelphia the first thing they get to right away is which 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 diocese? I mean, not diocese. Which, which um, parish were you in, and what Catholic school? Are you? There's this there's this affinity. Mm -hmm. Well, there's an affinity um, that I sense among Black people about about the churches mm -hmm. and their mm -hmm. experience in the churches. 
And I think that's wonderful. And yeah. I, I'll never be able to completely appreciate it, but I, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Right, right, you know? right. Um, so last question for yeah. me. For you. When, when did the narrative change for you, for people of color? I think it really started with that training session I went to that I mentioned to you earlier, not yours, but the one before that. That's when I really started, yeah. and that happened to be close to my retirement mm -hmm. time, and I took a year during my retire, you know, before the first year I retired to not join anything or do anything and kind of think through what I, where my priorities wanted to be, and that, yeah. the timing was really near that, mm -hmm. and it got me thinking that that was one of the things that I really wanted to pay attention to. And really, um, really, uh, Stice said I made a commitment to read more about it. To mm -hmm. uh, and then not long after that is when I went to Make your training thing, session, yeah. and that's probably why I went up to you after and said yeah. let's have lunch or whatever we did. The kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. And it just I think that was a turning point. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, I there were other earlier turning points, but in terms of really impactful ones. I yeah. Was that Marion's um, um, yeah. training? Yeah. 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 And, and I observe others in my parish, the sessions that, these were adult classes after church, and everybody goes to them and it's really nice, but at a certain time, everybody wants to leave because it's near noon or lunch. Yeah. The older folks have to go back and get their, at the retirement communities have to get their, people stayed. People wow. stayed longer than I've ever seen. And these right. are all white people. Right. And, and uh, you could tell, you could, the, the trainer was really good and he got us really thinking and he gave us exercises just like you do, the different yeah. exercise, but, but um, uh, it was really eye-opening. Well, yeah, great questions, thank you. It was yeah, really this was good. Yeah. I appreciate your yeah, transparency. Yeah. Learned a lot. And uh, tune in for our next, our yes. next one, yeah. Yes, we thank you all for joining, for joining us here for the yeah. Race to Social Justice. Yeah. I'm Kiva White, the black guy. I'm John Kepner, the white guy. And we'll see you again. Yeah.